This is On Mike with Jordan Rich, where creative people hang out and conversation is alive and well. He's a storyteller, a raconteur, a renaissance man, a radio legend, columnist, novelist, poet, with limericks a specialty, and of course, a humorist. He's got one of the more interesting voices gracing any microphone. It's the return of Garrison Keeler to our podcast with his two latest books. One is Boomtown, a Lake Wobegon novel, and the other one is called Serenity at 70, Gaiety at 80, a treatise on aging gracefully that will that'll have you smiling on every page, laughing out loud on some. So it's a great honor to welcome him back for some observations from the Upper West Side, or is it the cold plains of Minnesota? He's rather ubiquitous, actually. But enough with the introductions. Joining us now, the one and only Garrison Keeler, and we welcome him back to On Mike. Boomtown is terrific, and I don't know if you know anything about the Boston radio market or TV market, Garrison, but there was a TV show called Boomtown hosted by a cowboy star named Rex Trailer. And as I looked at the book and read through it, I couldn't help think that I was on that show when I was four years old. So thank you for bringing me. That's right. I had no idea. I should have Googled Boomtown. I thought I had invented something. Well, it, it, there well, is there is such a thing as the term Boomtown, but it made more sense and it was extra special for us here in New England. So thank you for that. Um, but but uh, I, I absolutely laughed out loud and loved the book and also uh, teared up at times. For those who have not read your Lake Wobegon stories, there there may be a few people in the world who've yet to do that. This is a continuation of your travels back to the old sod, isn't it? Yes, and and I am the narrator of the book. I mean, me myself by name, and uh, so that's unusual in itself. I I, I um, used to be omniscient, and and I'm not anymore, hmm. and I'm kind of ensuring people look at me in an odd way and they hold me responsible for for damaging the reputation of this town which I thought I created but <laughs> evidently not and um, and so everything has changed and I go back for funerals and and there are four of them in this book I think four or five actually uh, which I think is an all-time record for a novel by an American writer, and uh, uh, but it, but it's but it's still it's still a comedy. The narrator is has a certain equanimity, which um, which I lack in real life, but I am able to um, impersonate in a novel, and he and he simply. He simply watches the parade go by. All of these young millennial entrepreneurs who are busy making artisanal firewood and uh, and uh, gourmet meatloaf and um, <laughs> training dogs to be uh, nannies and, uh, and 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 he simply watches it all and uh, and he. Uh, enjoys old friends. Um, he sits down with people he knew in high school and and they weren't that close back then, but now old age brings people together. I, uh, I, 
I, I think that aspect of the novel is very, very true. There's a sweetness to it that we'll get to, but there's also, I love the self-deprecating approach you take, because poor Garrison, the, the narrator, is befuddled at times at what's going on and sort of left with his mouth agape, wondering what's going on. And I love the fact that you, you mix the millennials in with the brethren, with the old timers, and what happens when that happens, because that's happening all over America, as we know. It is, it is, and... Um... Living in New York, as I do, uh, you know, every time I go around a corner, I find myself um, out of date, out of date, hopelessly. And, uh, but you just, you just live with it. It is their world. It is not mine. And I wish them well. And, uh, but, I, but I don't have any hope of... of um, of becoming current, you know, and I am I am I am a yeah. historian, yeah. and um, and and they could put me in uh, in a museum, and you know I could talk about TV trays and phones <laughs> that plugged into the wall and uh, amaze people. Your character, your narrator, doesn't get upset, doesn't get angry, which is too easy if you fall into that trap, and it only makes you miserable. It's more of an observation, I guess, what's going on around us. Uh, it is what it is. Well, the millennials are riding high at the beginning of the novel, and, uh, but, they, but they make some mistakes, <laughs> and uh, they make claims for artisanal firewood and its uh, healthful uh, properties that uh, draw the attention of the... Uh, Food and Drug Administration, <laughs> and, and lawyers, lawyers, mm. flesh-eating lawyers descend from Washington and um, and straighten them out, and uh, and then their financing falls to pieces because they have been lending each other money and investing in each other's companies, and and suddenly it just goes flat. And um, I, I grew up with a sense of impending disaster. Um, <laughs> I, think, I think my mother gave me this, and, um, and, and, and I've kept it all my life. And, and, it, and it's a good thing to have, I think. I mean, look, look around us and look at how quickly the world has changed mm. you know more in Europe we've gone back to 1950 in just two weeks mm -hmm. so there's there's a lot of that in this in this book this this sense of, of, of you know that, that this may fall it's interesting the the structure that you inhabit in the book you you go back to an old cabin that was owned by a, a late departed friend of yours the first friend you visit in terms of the funeral it symbolizes a lot doesn't it the the things we can hold the things we can touch the chatterbox cafe which still exists thank goodness in in this imaginary town there's something solid about that even though it's decrepit the cabin the cabin that i described that I go back to is a real cabin. Uh, it's a cabin that I knew when I was um, in my early 20s, 21, 
and I spent the summer with an old friend and her family uh, up on Cross Lake in northern Minnesota. And I remember every every piece of furniture, the yellow table that we ate at, and the and the propane stove, and the outhouse, and the swinging bed on the porch. And I've recreated it in 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 this book because it was so important to me. Uh, I fell in love with uh, the, a cousin of my old high school friend in that cabin. Mm. And um, so my life changed. And uh, it's a piece of memory, you know, a piece of crucial memory that because of its importance, every single detail is firm in my mind. I don't remember much of whole swashes of my 50s and 60s because I was simply busy, you know, mm. pursuing a career. And, um, but, I, but I remember very specifically uh, the, the door to a classroom that I walked through and walked into Lavona Pearson's speech class when I was in the 10th grade in Anoka, Minnesota. Um, and and I and I love to put these very specific scenes into into a novel. Yeah. It um, it gives it some resonance that I can't explain. Oh, the descriptives are beautiful. But I have a question in terms of style. When you're sitting down to write, you want to write about your old English teacher, Miss Harding, whatever her name is. Are, are you magically coming up with more stuff as you start the process of writing? Some writers tell me that happens. Well. It is a process of accumulation, but but I do believe that all writing is rewriting, and and that one keeps going going back to it, and it's a process of of demolition and reconstruction, and my <laughs> my motto is nothing is ever finished. You know, <laughs> you simply get tired of it and you push it aside. But I know that if I went back to Boomtown, um, <laughs> I would change a lot in there. Hmm. Isn't that that's kind of, that's kind of that's a terrible thing to admit, you know? To to to, to you know, if you're trying to promote your own work, but but it's the absolute truth. Well, it's the, the you're only as good as your last show that they tell you in radio school. But in your case, um, and I love the book, uh, as you can probably tell, but in your case, every paragraph, and I'm telling this to the, to the listeners, every paragraph is constructed so that you could lift the paragraph out and just there's an entire novel, a story right there. Can I use one example? if that's okay, and have you comment? Yes, sir. All right, so for instance, he's talking about the, the townsfolks, and I'll just pick up from page 102 and just read the first sentence or two. Norm knew, Norm was your friend who passed, Larry Becker, who flunked out of divinity school due to hard partying, but used a fake diploma to obtain a job as a Methodist youth minister in Boston. I could stop right there and you got a whole story. <laughs> but the greatest punchline, or the tag, as we say, is coming up, and... Uh, I don't want to read it. I just want to have you just relay the fact that history has changed in a cab that he's driving in terms of what we all know today as 
a major social media platform. I thought that was brilliant. <laughs> yes, uh, 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 a young man, uh, a young <laughs> nerdy man, rides in the cab, and he uh, and he has an idea for um, for, for uh, a social media project, and um, and Larry. And, and and Larry hears his suggestion, and and he says, "No, that's not a good name. Um, how about Facebook?" And and the guy <laughs> says, "Yeah, yeah, I like that." The, and um, yeah. so that's his missed opportunity. He 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 gets a little slip of paper from Mr. Zuckerberg, and um, and and. So that gives him percentage, and and he loses it, <laughs> and so he spends um, the next uh, four, five, ten years looking for Mr. Zuckerberg, who is rising in 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 the world and famous, and um, and he almost catches him once as the man is crossing the sidewalk to get into a long black limo. And he says, uh, "Excuse me," and and the man disappears. Right, life's well, lost opportunity, <laughs> but hilariously put together in this novel. The backbone for me, and there's so much going on, and there's so much funny stuff and opportunity to just chuckle to yourself. But the the real soul and heart, uh, at least for me, is the relationship that you have with Arlene Bunsen, this woman who's dying. She's got the terminal disease, and she is awesome. Did you know an Arlene Bunsen, or is she an amalgam of people that you've known? No, she's an amalgam of women I have known who were stoics, but were very funny about it. And um, I've known several women who were in the process of leaving the world, and they left it so gracefully and they knew they were on their way out and they still and they had a great deal that they wanted to say mm. and somehow having a dreadful disease liberated them from from the strictures of, of, of you know the culture that they grew up in I come from Minnesota where we place weight value on being nice and 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 gentility and and she crosses the line and she and she speaks the truth and she's very blunt and she's very funny and uh, she does not want to have a celebration of life god forbid <laughs> and she does not want people to say that she passed she's not passing she's dying and uh, and she does not want a eulogy, and my character is in the eulogy business, and uh, and she makes that very clear to him. Your character, you, you're loyal to that town, and certain members of that town have moved on, but the ones that are still there are still loyal to that town as well, and that's a reassuring feeling for me as the reader. Well, it's it's where we come from, and. And so it is endlessly interesting, I think, to 
to to go back to one's origins and to and to discern the influence that people had on you and events had on you. Um, I, I was a mediocre student in high school. I, I did not have a clear future and, 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 and people were people worried about, about me. Uh, I was a middle child. I sort of tried to be invisible. I, I was cowardly in many ways and, and people worried about me. And, and so you go back to your, your, early, your early life and you try to think, how did I emerge from this? Where, where, do, where do I come from? I, I rebelled against so much of it, and yet I still carry it with me. I grew up fundamentalist, and I have... And I and I and I picked up all of the fundamentalist faults, the sort of the sort of arrogance of people who believe they have a, a corner on the truth, and um, and and the lack of social skills. How did I take these all of this baggage and um, and and make a life out of it? You know, which which I did somehow. It's interesting to look back and uh, think about the career and the amazing success on radio. I always loved the story about how this all came about. Wasn't it your idea and you pitched it, having done a little radio traditionally, you pitched it to somebody in Minnesota and they they gave you the go-ahead? How did that happen, the original idea for a Prairie Home Companion? I I was writing for the New Yorker magazine, which was my uh, great goal in life. I just admired it partly just I love the writers in the magazine and and New York, you know, to a guy from Minnesota, New York was the ultimate. And and but once I got busy writing for the New Yorker, I realized that I was writing in a voice that was not natural to me. Mm. I was imitating uh, Perlman, I was hmm. imitating Cheever, I was imitating Updike, and and I didn't feel comfortable. I wrote a piece for the New Yorker magazine about the Grand Ole Opry in Nashville, Tennessee, mm-hmm. and that's where I got the idea for A Prairie Home Companion. All of these people came to watch a live radio show on a stage, and... Um, and and I I couldn't get a ticket. <laughs> I, I was standing in the parking lot, looking in through an open window, and it was in the summertime. And I wrote about the show, and the New Yorker published it. And the fact that it was in the New Yorker, you know, gave it some credibility back in Minnesota. And so I took it to the radio station where I was working, and they said, sure, go ahead. And we had the great advantage of low expectations 
and nobody noticed the show hmm. for, I would say, about two or three years. And that gives you time doing a weekly show to, to sort of get your legs. Sure. And, uh, you know, and to, and to feel comfortable yeah. with it. Yeah. And, um, you know, being plunged into, um, you know, into, into bright uh, spotlight is, 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 not, is not an advantage. Well, it's perfect time to segue to another project that will relate directly to Boomtown as well, and it's called Serenity at 70, Gaiety at 80, Why You Should Keep on Getting Older. And uh, the reason I, I say it's a perfect time to segue is because I believe you mentioned one phenomenal concert that uh, many of us remember quite fondly at Tanglewood in the Berkshires. You said, uh, I think, what, 14,000, 15,000 people and what that felt like, even even at the stage in your career when you've been doing this and became an international star. Something so incredibly inspiring and exciting about doing something like that in front of a live audience, isn't there? Tanglewood was a place where it was very easy to walk off the stage and out into the crowd. And um, I loved the sound at Tanglewood. It just was a, mm. it was a beautiful, warm sound. And it was where I got the idea to walk into the audience and start singing a cappella and sing uh, My Country Tis of Thee, Sweet <laughs> Land of Liberty. Yeah. And, and people join in and people who had not sung in choir in many years, suddenly discovered the pleasure of it, of singing a song that we all know the words, and people around you are singing, and you hear harmonies around you. And, um, and I used to end every show at Tanglewood by walking out into the crowd, and, and we would sing songs that everybody knew for, mm. for 30, 40 minutes. As long as they wanted to stay, we would, we, we would, we would sing. And, right. Um, right. you know, we'd, we'd sing a, a hymn or two, and, uh, and we'd sing, uh, you know, I've been working on the railroad, everybody <laughs> knew, and uh, going to the chapel, and we're going to get married, and uh, on and on. And if there were millennials floating around, they actually got into it as well. The songs that everybody knows, even if the youngins haven't bothered to learn it, they can pick them up pretty quick. And there is that communal sense of we're all in this together enjoying ourselves. I love that story, and I love there were, the memories. There were, people, there were young people in the crowd who were Googling the songs like this. <laughs> yeah, looking for <laughs> the words singing online. Them off their, <laughs> singing them off their cell phones. I want to talk with you just briefly again about this other wonderful project, which uh, I'm, I'm going to suggest as a self-help book for people who have a bit of a concern about getting older and fearing the future and fearing all the regrets and all that. I just want to have you comment on a few things because we could talk all day, but you talk about the five stages of aging as you define them, and I'll just list them. Nameless dread, the crisis of bad news, self-pity and disgust, a revelatory experience, and then contentment and maybe even happiness, spoken like a true brethren fellow. 
<laughs> but but you know, as I read that, uh, and I'm a little younger than you are, not not too far behind. I kind of agree with that, man. The older you get, the less you're concerned about that stuff that drove you crazy a few years ago. Mm-hmm. Revelatory, revelatory experience. Yes, yes. One hopes, one hopes for that. Uh, I, 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 I think I found. Um, I think that the the COVID pandemic was revelatory for me. Mm-hmm. It came a little late, but you discover in the lockdown the pleasures of the small life. Yes. And after the life I had had for years, where I was in constant motion and traveling and traveling and traveling, and um, and was too ambitious for my own good, um, you settle down and you discover this person who you've been married to all these years and uh, and what a pleasure it is to be together mm. and um, and how the two of you can improve the day this this is such a revelation uh, and and um, I hope I covered it in that book at least uh, a little bit. Oh, I, I without question. When I called you this morning for this interview, you had said you were just getting up after getting beaten by your lovely wife at Scrabble. It sounds a lot like my wife. She's the uh, she's the hard charging uh, Toro in the family, and she my wife pulls the same routine with words that I never heard of with no vowels. And <laughs> but isn't it, it? It's true when you're when you're forced with with no opportunity to, to go out, you, you have to be there with that person. You can either take the road uh, less traveled or the one that uh, says, I uh, love this person more and more, and now I understand why. It's beautifully said. Well, she's, she's good company, and she's someone who is never at a loss for words, and, um, and she's very good with the comeback, <laughs> and, uh, and she's got excellent timing. And uh, so I appreciate that. But she she is a she's a walker. She's a hiker. She walks, I would say, six, seven miles every day around New York. And uh, and and so I sit uh, at a table and I and I and I write and I've written four books, I think, in the last two years and at work on another one. And um uh, and that's another revelatory experience. I, I, I tried very hard uh, to to be a writer, uh, a sort of writer that I'm not. And and finally, you get to an age where you simply where you simply be who you are on the page. Indeed, and we should add, uh, and I have a few more questions about this other wonderful book, you should add that you're still doing the daily podcast, The Writer's Almanac. I'm still doing it for a little while. It's, it's coming to an end because I don't have the time <laughs> to uh, do the research that I should, that I should do. Um, so I think it comes to an end in, in May. Well, there, the, the uh, programs exist on this thing they call a cloud, whatever that means, and it's there for eternity. And I love their, their, their lovely little squats. I just did an interview with a, a gal who wrote a book about, I shouldn't say gal, I can say it, a gal who wrote a book about 
Sylvia Beach called the Paris bookseller, I believe. Sure enough, there you were uh, on one of your almanacs talking about her birthday. <laughs> and I said, oh, wow, uh, all comes together. Well, Let me jump back because I, I don't want to hold you up too much longer, but I love the rules for, for aging, and we're not going to run through them all. Many of them are poignant, touching, and some of them are just downright funny. Don't you, you know, it's okay to use the microwave. But the one rule I wanted to have you comment on is number eight. Enumerate your benefits beginning with English. And you're the writer, and you're the master of, of wordplay. Why did you suggest enumerate the benefits of English? English is a language that has never defended itself against uh, the alien. It has, it has uh, absorbed and embraced the alien, and it continues to. And each generation... Uh, adds its own, adds its own uh, lingo and jargon, and uh, and so it's a it's a, it's a very comical <laughs> language. I I, I I sit down and and um, I make fun of um, I make fun of this big push in the arts toward diversity and uh, inclusivity and. And the jargon is is very telling, and 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 using using ordinary English, you can you can be ironic about about just about anything. It's such a rich language, and and of course, when you when you travel, you discover um, it is the international language. It's the only one, and. Um, and so here we are. It affords you and people like me who love to pun, uh, but it affords you the ability to write these poems and these uh, rhythmic passages that just dance and have have somebody uh, across the globe reading it on the page and laughing out loud. <laughs> One hopes. One, One hopes. hopes. Well, uh, if if I'm uh, any indication uh, of people of my ilk. And I think I have a few friends out there. I think you're in good hands. Uh, the the both books are definite uh, books to get and to share and to give as gifts. So we want to promote the fact that Boomtown, a Lake Wobegon novel, is out there. And Serenity at 70, Gaiety at 80, Why You Should Keep on Getting Older. And by the way, I love the illustrations in this book. If you've just picked it up and looked at it, you say, what the hell am I looking at here? Uh, a, a picture of... Some guy getting his head drilled through and then Dante and his poems. I mean, it's just love it, love it, love it. Absolutely love it. It's references galore. So, <laughs> Thank you so much, Mr. Rich. Mr. Keeler, it's a pleasure. I wish you the best and the good health and happiness and keep on working. We really appreciate all that you deliver. Thank you, sir. You too. All right, all you shy people, be sure to visit garrisonkeeler.com for, for details on all the books, the podcasts, the live events, and more. Garrison Keeler. Thanks to Dan Tebow, Fast Witch Media, for his help in publishing this and many other podcasts. We produce this one and many other podcasts right here at our studios in Boston, Chart Productions, chartproductions.com. And you can find out more about me at jordanrich.com. Thanks to you for tuning in, for spreading the word, for rating and reviewing this podcast with listeners all over the world now, including Wyoming. Finally. This is Jordan, as always, saying be well. So you can do good. Take good care.